what's up everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update here on January 27th. About to move into February as 2024 cranks along and just already is crazier than 2023 if you've been following the news. Today's show, we're going to talk about two fires that a lot of folks have heard about and maybe one that some haven't, but if you're from Oregon, you've definitely heard about this fire. And then the other incident that we're going to talk about is known nationwide, and I'm speaking of the Beachy Creek Fire in Oregon and the Dixie Fire out in California. I've spoken about both of these before, but some new developments have taken place, specifically in the court system about these fires, dealing with who's responsible, who's going to pay what, And it has just led to more questions and more frustration from people in the areas where these incidents took place. A quick background on both fires before we get into the details of what's going on. The Beachy Creek Fire took place up in Oregon. It burned hundreds of thousands of acres, ate up hundreds of structures. And I talked about this before because Pacific Core Power was sued for $1 billion dollars after this incident took place. The Beachy Creek took place back in 2020. There was a bunch of red flag warnings, high winds, very dry that year up in the Pacific Northwest. And then this fire started and it took off. And then there was all sorts of other fires in that area that burned as well. When it came to the Pacific Core lawsuit, the plaintiffs were saying that they were negligent in caring for their lines and their right of ways for where those power lines were. And they were also accused of not powering off those systems when these red flags went into effect and high winds were in the area. And then ultimately they were accused of having trees and debris fall on their lines, causing a spark and a short. And then ultimately the accusations were it started this fire. The Dixie Fire out in California burned almost a million acres Massive, massive wildfire costing billions of dollars in damages. Burned for a very long time. And again, another power company, PG&E, was accused of starting this fire or their power lines and their right-of-ways for their power lines. They were accused of having negligence when it came to mitigating any of the hazards and trees in the area. And it, it's basically this, the same old story. A tree fell on their power lines, it sparked, it caused a short, and then ultimately this fire started and burned nearly a million acres. But as I said, there have been new developments on both of these incidents. New people are being sued. More accusations are going out. And ultimately, there's a lot of folks saying, specifically in the Dixie Fire lawsuit that was just finalized just this last week, I believe, where, you know, the fines weren't enough and it should go further, but then that dives into everyone's power prices going up in California, PG&E saying that they need to increase your power costs by 26% and ultimately saying, hey, we can't stop these things unless we charge you a lot more money. But first things first, we'll start up in Oregon with this Beachy Creek Fire It took place on the Willamette National Forest. It's a very beautiful area. There's a lot of old-growth timber and a lot of timber stands and timber sales. In that region, it's a heavily 
underutilized area for that sort of industry. And a lot of these local towns run off this timber industry up there. This new coverage is by Zach Ernest and was in the Statesman's Journal. It's a great article published this week on this whole ordeal. Now, I talked about this on a podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, but at that point in time, I only had access to court documents and not a whole lot of other details of what actually was going on. I knew that a local forest and timber company was suing the Willamette National Forest for $33 million. And now they're not saying what the original lawsuit against Pacificor, which was, hey, you started this fire. This lawsuit is saying that the Willamette National Forest was negligent in putting that fire out. And, you know, we'll have the conversation of what it's like to be on the ground as a wildland firefighter, a supervisor, someone who's in charge of an incident as an incident commander, you know, your operations sections chief who are making these decisions on what should we do with this incident, its location, so on and so forth, and how that kind of develops and how it can turn into what was the Beachy Creek Fire where this thing blows out and eats up a bunch of land. So what are the details happening up in the Willamette National Forest in Oregon with this lawsuit? Well, it says an Oregon timber company has sued the United States Forest Service for $33 million for not putting out the 2020 Beachy Creek Fire before it turned into a raging inferno. Freyres Lumber Company, based in Santiam Canyon, contends that the Willamette National Forest was negligent and failed to follow its own mandated fire attack plan, and it led to one of the largest and deadliest wildfires in state history. So first, let's talk about this. What is a mandated fire attack plan? Well, when the season is about to start, you get together with dispatch, you get together with the forest, and you set up all sorts of things. You set up something called a run card, which is if there's a new incident on your forest, you have specifically set resources on this thing called a run card, and that is an automatic dispatch of those resources when a wildfire takes place. It can change. It's not necessarily... A massive resource order it just depends on what the severity of the potential for wildfire is in that area. But it could be something like, hey, we're going to send an air attack platform, uh, uh, a tanker, like a seat plane, a helicopter, two crews, two engines, and a dozer. And that's your run card. And everybody in dispatch has that. And then you have a plan based on that as well, saying, hey, if it's you have a big map of your forest and you say, hey, if it's in this area of the forest, this is how we are going to attack this fire. And you have these pre-made plans on these forests in these districts before the season starts. So you're kind of ahead of the curve when these starts happen. Now, are these set in stone? You know, the run card kind of is. These plans, these attack plans kind of are. It is considered policy. But there's always room for adjusting those plans. That's just kind of how the wildfire world works. It's adapt and overcome. You have a primary plan, a secondary plan, a tertiary plan, and you have these things in place so you can adjust because 
the wildfire is a very dynamic environment. Things can change. Weather systems can move in. And you may want to adjust on that. Like if there's a small IA that starts and it's looking like it's going to rain in the next couple days, you may want to try to sure up a couple flanks and just kind of what we would call tickle it a little bit because we have rains expected coming in and we'll let the fire just do its thing and it can eat up some of that ground material and do good. And at the same time, you have a start in the same area and you look at the forecast and it's like, hey, we got red flag warnings for the next couple of days. Same fire, same place, different weather. You'll change your plans and say, hey, we need to squash this thing as fast as we possibly can. So that's kind of a look on what these mandated fire attack plans are, what a run card is, and how these dispatches and forests kind of set up pre-season to have something in place when these fires happen. The article continues saying the Beachy Creek fire originated in the Opal Creek wilderness in mid-August 2020, most likely ignited by lightning and remained small for weeks. In early September, the fire started to grow and then exploded during historically powerful east winds on September 7th and 8th. The fire eventually merged with fires ignited by down power lines in the Santium Canyon. The combination Santium-Beachy Creek fire burned 193,000 acres, killed five people, and destroyed hundreds of homes. The company president, Rob Freyrez, said the fire burned one-third of the company's private timberland, or about 5,800 acres. So obviously a pretty big financial hit to this company. That fire will affect our business for the next 50 years. The thrust of the lawsuit is that the Forest Service decided the Beachy Creek fire was a full suppression fire, but did not commit its resources to putting out that incident. Quote, the Forest Service failed to sufficiently utilize the helicopters that were available to suppress and contain the Beachy Creek fire, the lawsuit says. Its initial attack, which the Forest Service recognizes as the best opportunity to control a wildfire, was entirely unsuccessful at containing the fire, leaving the fire 0% contained. After that failed initial attack, the Forest Service failed to drop any water on the fire for nearly two weeks, says the complaint. Now, I can see what the Willamette National Forest was maybe doing that ultimately led up to this when the fire blew out because of what they said were historic winds. Number one, this took place in a wilderness area. So having fought fire in wilderness areas, what does that look like? Well, we have something called mist tactics in wilderness areas. This is basically a policy When you're fighting fire in the wilderness, MIST stands for Minimal Impact Suppression Tactics. And it's kind of an inside joke when you go to a fire in the wilderness and you're constantly asking yourself, and it's a joke on the crew and for everybody that's on the fire, like, hey, are we even going to put this thing out? No, we're using misty tactics. Or, hey, this hand line is misty. And it's just... The way it is when you're on a wilderness fire. So, I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm saying this is what I've seen happen on countless other wilderness fires that I've been on. You show up. It's in the wilderness. It's a nice little fire. It's not doing much. And you put minimal resources on it. And you tell them, hey, we want minimal impact 
for our tactics when you're suppressing this thing because of what a wilderness is. Hey, we don't want to disturb the ecosystem. There's, you know, mating birds in the area. Uh, the, the deer and the elk are about to rut, so we don't want to disturb that. I've even seen people go as far as having biologists come into our division and they have a speaker with bird calls on it. And they, before we can fire up our chainsaws, which you're lucky if they let you use a chainsaw in the wilderness. But before we started work each day, the biologist would come out with a iPhone plugged into a speaker and he would play bird noises on our division. And then he would wait. I forget the time frame. It was like 20 to 30 minutes. He would wait while playing these bird sounds And if any birds called back, we weren't allowed to cut that day. And that was, hey, we're protecting the habitat of these birds who potentially could be mating and trying to lay eggs and so on and so forth. Like this sort of thing happens on wildfires. So maybe the Willamette National Forest was putting in missed tactics for this incident. But of course, what can happen is you have winds come in. And because you haven't put in ball or hand line and bomb-proof control lines, even a little bit of wind can blow out that type of fire. And when I say blow out, I don't mean put out. I mean punch out of your control lines and turn into a massive raging inferno. Continuing, it says, As a result of the Forest Service's negligent failure to follow its own mandated fire attack plan, the Beachy Creek Fire grew from a smoldering 3.5 acres into a firestorm. So there you go. The fire's 3.5 acres. I'm going to assume that they were using minimal impact suppression tactics on the Beachy Creek Fire initially, especially if it's only 3.5 acres. Basically, the type of fire that is a what you would call a, a camping trip. You go hang out in the wilderness next to a lake and you just make sure the thing doesn't take off on you. The lawsuit seeks compensation for lost timber and related damages that are a direct result of the Forest Service's negligence. An investigation story published by the Statesman Journal on January 5th, all the way back on 2021, detailed how the Forest Service managed the Beachy Creek Fire before its blowout. Among other things, it found fire crews dropped 620,000 gallons of water on the Beachy Creek Fire while it was still small and confined in a remote part of the Opal Creek wilderness. But they also went nine days without dropping any water, never used fire retardant, and didn't engage the fire on the ground, according to the U.S. Forest Service records. So in the industry, we would call this freelancing. And what that looks like is you're on a fire, you don't want to commit people to it, which, again, that sounds like mistactics to me. But you got a helicopter with a bucket or you have a seat plane that is going to drop water on it. And usually when you're doing water drops, you nearly always have to have someone on the ground because they want you to follow up that water drop to mix and stir that water into the ground to make sure that it penetrates that duff layer and puts out the fire that's burning anywhere between six inches and two feet underground from that dead, rotting material that sits on the forest floor. If you don't dig that up, these things can continue to burn and continue to burn through the winter. There's been a lot of talk about zombie fires 
up in Canada and in the United States. And oh my gosh, these things burn through the winter and the conversation of the Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon down in New Mexico. You know, I'm not a fan of the zombie fire terminology because I've seen these things for decades. Like it's how it works. There's duff, which is dead rotting debris on the forest floor. And if you don't get down to mineral soil, this stuff can continue to burn because it's insulated. So what freelancing is, is you just tell the aerial resources, hey, just go freelance that fire. You can drop water wherever you want from the air where it looks like there should be water drops. You go and do that. And you don't have anybody on the ground to follow up to make sure the drops are good or to mix and stir and really solidify the use of that water. At the same time, if they dropped a bunch of retardant on it, would have that worked? I don't know. That all depends. Retardant sometimes works. Retardant sometimes doesn't work. But you also have to consider it's in the wilderness. And we just had a massive lawsuit out of Missoula, Montana, when it came to the Forest Service's use of retardant in wilderness areas, areas that have riparian areas, which are these wetland areas, and near any sort of water sources. So... If they had dropped retardant on the Beachy Creek fire, they probably would have been sued for that as well. It says the Forest Service wouldn't comment on the lawsuit, but in previous stories about how they managed the fire, officials said simply dropping water on the fire would not put it out, and they needed ground firefighters to contain it. Exactly what I was saying. You you can't put out the fire unless you dig up that duff layer. Two hotshot crews turned down the assignment to fight the fire direct on the ground because of extremely steep, remote, and dangerous terrain. Again, I've seen this happen so many times where it's gnarly ground. You don't want to send people up there because if someone gets injured, it's a nightmare trying to get them out, and you end up with rescue scenarios like we had on the Anvil fire that I talked about on the Substack, where it takes six and a half hours to get one person off the hill, and then you endanger another 45 people who are involved in that rescue mission, and it just becomes a nightmare scenario. And so what do you do? You tell aerial resources to freelance the fire with water drops. It says, therefore, the crews move to a containment strategy of attempting to keep the fire inside the fire lines that they built around it. They said calls for using fire retardant and additional resources were denied due to other higher priority wildfires. That also happens all the time. You have a fire that's burning near a community. This fire is in the wilderness. You say, hey, we need more resources on this fire if we want to stop it. They look at a map and they say, this fire is only 3.5 acres. It's in the wilderness. Resource request denied. That's how it happens. It continues saying that the timber company isn't convinced. Now, on their side of the argument, I totally understand the devastation and the financial loss of losing thousands of acres of basically what is your livelihood, and you look at the scenario and you say, what the hell, someone needs to be held responsible. And that's the same thing with these power companies that get sued. People lose property, and they say someone needs to be held responsible. That's how this sort of thing works. They're quoted as saying, we feel like we, we feel like they were grossly negligent in not fully suppressing the fire when they had weeks to do it. It was aggravating to see helicopters just parked at the Gates airfield while we could see smoke coming out of the forest for weeks. Yeah, I bet that was aggravating. 
totally understandable. That's that's one of the problems when it comes to dealing with the perception of the public where they see hotshot crews or engines at the grocery store or at the gas station and there's a column coming off the mountain or they're looking at the airport and there's tankers and helicopters on the ground. It's easily to get frustrated because you're saying, hey, why the hell aren't you putting out this fire? Because of their actions, it says, we lost one-third of our timberland that we have. We won't be able to harvest three million seedlings that we had planted. Yeah, like, you you understand their frustration and why they've gone to this point to sue for $33 million because they basically lost everything after this fire blew out. Continuing, legal experts say that the timber company will have a difficult time successfully suing the federal government for how it managed a wildfire, and that similar cases have been unsuccessful. It is very hard to sue the feds when it's a case saying, hey, you're responsible for this sort of thing. It usually does get pawned off to a power company or a judge says, you know, we'll award you a couple thousand dollars and that's that. The main thing being is these forests don't want to take fault for those fires. There's plenty of fires I've been on. Same situation. It was, I think when we showed up, we were, we were a crew two and it was two acres. And when I was in the briefing, I said, Hey, we should just go up there and smash this thing out. Same type of deal. It was late September. The season was almost over. And it's just like, Hey, we should put this thing out. The forest said, no, we don't like your plan. And they stuck us a mile and a half away doing project work on a ridgeline. And then lo and behold, the weather system came in. It blew it out. It went hundreds of thousands of acres, costing millions of dollars. And then all sorts of things happened that I won't really get into at this point in time. But at the end of it, that forest supervisor was moved to a different forest. No one took blame. The governor showed up and said, oh, what a tragedy. This couldn't have been prevented, but, you know, we'll look into it. And the whole time... Me and everybody else that was on that fire was like, they are not telling the whole truth. We've been here since day one. This is not how it happened. Point being, no one actually wants to take fault for these sorts of things because then you really open yourself up to a lot of problems. The article says the government enjoys a high level of immunity from lawsuits. Yep, they sure do. There are some explanations and exceptions, including the Federal Tort Claims Act, which... Freyrez, the timber company, is using that does not allow individuals and businesses to sue for injuries caused by negligent acts of government employees. To succeed, the plaintiff's lawyers would likely need to show the Forest Service violated a mandatory firefighting rule, policy, or plan. And like I said, they are saying that there was a mandatory fire attack plan that wasn't followed and these things are public. You you can get access to those, especially if you just go into your local dispatch office and say, hey, what's your run card for fires on your district or fires on your forest? And they'll tell you. They'll say, hey, this is our plan. We put it together in March, and this is how we are going to act moving forward. Quote, yes, the government does have immunity in many cases, says the timber company. In this case, we believe we can overcome that because they deemed it a full suppression fire and didn't fully suppress it. They failed to follow their own rules. Now, what's going to happen probably is in this case, they're going to say, well, we had hotshot crews turn down the assignment due to safety reasons. Therefore, when it comes to life, limb, 
and property and self-preservation, we couldn't fully suppress this. And we did what we could. But again, that doesn't take away that it burned up all of this private land and basically destroyed the livelihood of everyone at this timber company. Andy Stahl, who we have talked about, he was the one who sued the Forest Service for using retardant up in Missoula. He's mentioned this article. It says, Andy Stahl, an environmentalist who has been a part of numerous public lands lawsuits, said he didn't think the lawsuit will go anywhere. It says that firefighters are given the benefit of discretionary function or the ability to make decisions about how they fight a fire. He noted that the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals recently upheld dismissal of a similar lawsuit in Wyoming because the judges ruled decisions on how to manage the fire were best lodged with officials and experts on the ground than with judges aided by the benefit of hindsight. And then the article concludes with what I've covered before, saying that the timber company isn't the only entity suing the Forest Service. They are also part of a major class action lawsuit against the utility Pacificor which I did an entire podcast on that. $1 billion is what the plaintiffs are asking for, saying that they were negligent in maintaining their power lines. When these red flags and winds came in, trees fell on their power lines is the accusation, and it led to these fires happening. There's also another timber company suing Pacific Corps. That's looking to be held. The, the trial is looking to be held in April to determine if damages paid out by the utility or if they should be paid. But the timber companies are trying to work through mediation and probably come up with some sort of settlement so they don't have to go to trial and then incur all sorts of financial burden when it comes to trying to do that as well. It's an ongoing saga. It'll probably continue for years to come. And I'll conclude with this. I can see both sides of the story. One, the timber company lost their business, basically, because a fire that was in the wilderness that was at 3.5 acres and sat for weeks and weeks with no resources on the ground blew out, and then, of course, it burned up a bunch of private land. On the side of the Willamette National Forest and How that goes, because I've been involved in this as well, it's a wilderness fire. You take minimal impact suppression tactics. You tell pilots to go freelance the fire because we have other priorities. Hotshot crews turn down the assignment due to safety reasons. And because you don't have boots on the ground, mixing and stirring and digging up that duff layer to get it down to mineral soil, if you do get wind on these fires, even though you dropped 620,000 gallons on that incident, it literally only takes a little bit of smoldering pine needles to then carry onto barks of a tree. It gets up into the tree, and if you have strong enough winds, you now have a crown fire, and then you can't stop that. So we'll see what ultimately happens. It's how it's going to turn out as it comes down to the judge. What's the, what is the judge going to decide, and are any damages going to be awarded? If it's not paid out, You know, you do feel for the timber company because they have a massive, massive financial loss because of this. When it comes to the totality of wildfire budgets in our nation, 33 million really isn't that much. You know, a single fire can cost $250 million just to try to put out when it comes to suppression costs, so on and so forth. Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak, you're looking at a billion dollars in suppression costs. 
So you look at that $33 million number and you may say, wow, that's that's a lot, but that's probably the cost of the marketable timber that they lost after the Beachy Creek fire got onto their property and, and burned it up. It's also peanuts compared to what Pacific Core is being sued for, which is $1 billion, which ultimately they just pass on to their customers in terms of rate increases and ultimately more often they just turn your power off now because they are afraid of getting sued. I'll cover more on this as the trial develops, but I'd like to take this time to thank the paid Substack subscribers. Everything I do is 100% community supported. We actually have a boot giveaway happening right now as well for our subscribers on the Substack. If you want to be a part of that, go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on that subscribe button. And not only do you support everything that I do, you also are entered into all of our giveaways going forward. This week's, it's Nick's Boots, who have donated a pair for myself to give away to our subscribers. In the coming weeks, other companies have stepped up and said, hey, we want to help and donate to your community as well, so we'll have more of those giveaways coming. But thanks to Nick's Boots for donating this pair. Again, if you want to support what I do, this podcast is ad-free and sponsorship-free. You just go to the hotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on subscribe, and that automatically enters you into the giveaways. You have access to all the podcast archives, the article archives, and everything else that I do. Thank you very much to those that do do that. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. I have traveled this year over all the United States. Through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. PG&E is back in the news for all of the same reasons as it, you know, seems like they are which is their involvement in a wildfire in California. I'm sure basically everyone knows who this company is. They are the largest power provider out in California. They went bankrupt and came out of bankrupt. They received a lot of government funding to keep them alive. And basically, if PG&E goes out of business, you no longer have power in California. But it seems every single year, they are sued and settle or claim responsibility for starting a fire that caused billions of dollars in damage, took out a bunch of homes, ended up in fatalities, and it all comes down to the same thing, which is, hey, you didn't maintain your right-of-way for your power lines, and then trees fell on your power lines and it started a fire. It's why we're seeing power costs go up drastically in states, in the Western United States, specifically in California. And this kind of leads into that as well. This is involving the Dixie Fire that took place back in 2021, which started in July. It burned nearly a million acres. Thousands of structures and homes were lost and was one of the most devastating and largest fires in California's history. This lawsuit has been ongoing, but finally... PG&E reached a settlement with the state of California saying we will pay $45 million for 
the damages and the cause of this Dixie fire. Now, the losses in the Dixie fire were in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So you look at this $45 million payment and you ask yourself, well, that doesn't seem like very much. And then you look at where $40 million of that $45 million is going, and it's basically being reinvested back into PG&E. I've spoke at length before about the connections PG&E has with the current governor of the state of California being Gavin Newsom, donations that were given to nonprofits that his wife runs. And if you want to dig into that, you can. I've covered it before, but there's there's information online where... I'm not saying they're in bed together, but I'm saying that money has flowed in that direction. Actually, both ways. Money has flowed both ways when it comes to that relationship. Is that surprising? No. This is kind of how the world works. Is it disappointing? Of course, because you don't want to see corporations in bed with government because then the end user and the consumer then gets screwed, which seems to be the ongoing case more and more uh, in our country quite frankly. In my opinion, is business bad? No. Are corporations ultimately evil? No. But if you start having government work directly with corporations to screw the citizen and the customer, yeah, that is a problem. That's actually a huge problem. So what went down this time? This is out of the LA Times. You know, rest in peace, all of the reporters who just got fired from the LA Times And it seems like across the board, a lot of media people are laying off hundreds, if not thousands of people. Thankfully, no one is going to fire me from the Hotshot Wake Up because I do this on my free time and I am the only person that works on this. So I personally don't even have any employees to fire and I'm not going to fire myself because I'm doing this on a Saturday morning on my free time before I go to the gym. So (laughs) I I think this is pretty safe. However, if you do want to have this continue... Again, go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com, click on subscribe to support me because that ultimately is the only way that I do keep this going. So the article says by Haley Smith that PG&E has penalized $45 million in the Dixie Fire settlement. Pacific Gas and Electric Company will be penalized $45 million for its involvement in one of the largest and most destructive wildfires in California. They have reached a settlement with state regulators. PG&E announced the settlement on Thursday and said the penalty includes $40 million in shareholder funding for an initiative to transition some of the utility's hard copy records to electronic records. Now, think about this. They're saying, hey, we're going to have a settlement for the Dixie Fire. We know it caused a billion dollars in damage. We know that it burned a million acres of California hardwood forest so we're willing to pay 45 million dollars but of that 40 million is being directly invested back in the company to turn hard copy records into electronic records so basically they're just updating their record keeping inside of the company using this money that they've settled with the california government you know revolving door when it comes to this money quite frankly they got one of the cushiest settlements they could have ever got for the most destructive fire in California's history. It says the initiative will support public safety by enabling more accurate record keeping of our information and immediate awareness of the conditions of PG&E's assets 
therefore improving the timeliness and inspections of preventative maintenance and assisting the CPUC, which is the California Public Utilities Commission, in conducting future audits and investigations. And that is a statement from the CPUC. PG&E will also pay $2.5 million in fines to the California General Fund and $2.5 million to tribes affected by the Dixie Fire. PG&E will distribute those payments to the Greenville Rancheria and Mabu Summit Consortium, a nonprofit representing a number of Mountain Maidu tribes and organizations. So again, a bunch of nonprofits are getting paid as well when it comes to this. The settlement was reached under a relatively new enforcement tool known as an Administrative Consent Order, which was established in 2020 to, quote, better serve Californians through streamlined enforcement actions. In its own report submitted to the agency soon after the Dixie Fire started, PG&E said a worker responded to an outage on the Feather River Canyon area of the Plumas County around 7 a.m., the day that the fire started but that he was not able to reach the site until 4.30 p.m. Once there, he found two blown fuses and a tree leaning into a power line conductor. A fire was burning at the base of the tree, which soon grew out of control. Interesting, they got there at 7 a.m., but couldn't get there till 4.30 p.m., which is when the fire was reported. I wonder if they would have been able to gain access sooner. We could have stopped this thing. Who knows? Again, hindsight, 2020. It continues saying PG&E officials on Thursday said the utility accepts that a tree falling onto their power line caused the fire, but it denies any fault or negligence. Classic, classic PG&E lawsuit. That's usually how it goes. We will pay you money, and in this case, ultimately paying ourselves money, but we're not going to accept fault or negligence in this case. Quote, PG&E believes we acted as a prudent operator. There is no evidence that PG&E willfully disregarded a known risk with regard to the ignition of the Dixie Fire. We followed the California Public Utilities Commission's requirements when inspecting, maintaining, and operating our system. We share our regulators' commitment to improve safety, the statement said. The utility said it will not request rate recovery for the settlement expenses, meaning the costs will not affect customers. However, the agreement does not preclude PG&E from receiving cost recovery for costs related to the fire, including the state's wildfire fund. So basically, PG&E said, yeah, we showed up. There was a tree on our power line transistor. There was a fire underneath the power pole, but we're not going to claim responsibility, and we can still go to the Wildland Fire Fund or the Wildfire Fund in California and recoup costs for losses of our equipment, which ultimately PG&E pays into that Wildfire Fund. So again, it's just PG&E paying itself is what it comes down to. At least that's how I understand this. It continues saying PG&E has been held accountable for other fires. In recent years, the electric company reached a $150 million settlement with CPUC for its role in the Zog Fire, I covered that on the podcast on Substack. And the $125 million settlement in its role in the Kincaid fire. Again, I did a podcast on that on the Substack. In 2019, PG&E filed for bankruptcy protection to shield itself from tens of billions of potential liabilities due to its role in these blazes. 
It emerged from bankruptcy in 2020 with officials promising improvements, including a plan to bury 10,000 miles of power lines in high-risk areas where strong winds, downed trees, and other factors can lead to fires. Only about 600 miles have been buried so far. And out of that, I think I wrote an article about this on the Substack. They were going to bury something like two or 3,000 miles this year or in 2023. They fell short of that, obviously. And they said it was because it cost too much money and we can't afford to bury that much power lines. The 10,000 miles that they're expected to bury, I believe, is expected to be done by 2031. But in recent articles that have come out as well, they say we actually need to raise rates on our consumers by 26% to cover the costs of burying power lines. And of course, that has created all sorts of controversy as well because they're saying, hey, well, you're going to raise rates over 25% but you've only buried 600 miles of line out of 10,000 that you promised. Last year, PG&E avoided criminal prosecution for the Dixie Fire as part of a separate settlement agreement with six Northern California counties in which it admitted no wrongdoing. The utility agreed to pay $55 million over five years in civil penalties among these terms. It says PG&E has since instituted a power line safety program to detect problems on distribution lines such as fallen trees, which then de-energizes the lines. Unfortunately, this program was not in place to prevent the Dixie Fire. This is also an ongoing trend in the Western United States where these power companies are sued. They say, okay, we have these plans to shut off your power when these sort of things happen. And they do. They shut off power all the time. But then you have a red flag day with 45 mile an hour winds, 10% relative humidity, and 100 degrees, and then they don't shut off the power during those days, and fires spark, it causes all sorts of damage, they get sued, they settle for a small amount, that money gets funneled back into the company, and they don't bury the power lines that they said they were going to. It's something that continues to be very interesting on how this all goes down. The suppression costs alone of the Dixie Fire were $673 million, and it was the second largest wildfire in California history. Again, I say this whenever I talk about PG&E. I don't expect this to be the last we hear of it. I also say you can't completely stop power lines from causing wildfires unless you bury every single power line. That's really the only way you can stop it from happening. I reported on last year a wildfire started because a squirrel got into a transmitter. It shorted out the transmitter, and the flaming squirrel landed on the ground underneath the power pole, and it started a fire. So it's not just trees falling in. It's not just 100% negligent from power companies. Freak things like that can happen as well. And the only way to stop all of that is to bury all the power lines. PG&E says it's going to cost them billions and billions and billions of dollars to make that happen. And in order to do that, they need to increase your rates by 26%. 
increasing their revenues by $3.2 billion, the company says, is what it needs to make up that difference. And this is coming out of the Fresno Bee with those numbers. But then you have state regulators saying you can't raise rates by 26% because that's too much to inflict on the consumer. And ultimately, you end up with this back and forth saying, well, we can't afford to bury our power lines, and then power lines that aren't buried start a fire. It eats up a bunch of homes and kills a bunch of people. They get sued. It's a small settlement. They don't claim responsibility. It gets put into the wildfire fund, which is basically created out of PG&E, and then $40 million goes back into PG&E to update record-keeping. So again, who gets screwed in the end? It's the it's the consumer. The consumer is who really gets shorted in all of this. But PG&E has a power play, and that power play is the state's not going to let us go bankrupt. And if we do go bankrupt, no one's going to have power. So they really don't have that much to worry about. Quite frankly, they're a too-big-to-fail company. One could argue that they're in bed with the California government in all of this. I'll let folks make up their own opinions on that, but if you ask a regular Californian about this, they will have opinions kind of leaning that way because they've seen this happen for decades and decades and decades. There's also other fires that they're currently under litigation for, one that took place not last year but the year before. I reported on the Substack that a power pole was involved in that fire. Individuals sent me pictures from the ignition point of that fire, and I reported on it. A bunch of people were just like, you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. Where did you get this? And uh, called me a liar, so on and so forth. And then ultimately, one week later, the Forest Service said that they confiscated a power pole, which is the power pole in the picture that I published, and an investigation had started into the cause of that fire, being that it was a PG&E power pole at the ignition point of that fire. So, have we seen the end of it? No. No, we really haven't. But I wanted to give an update on this one because the Dixie Fire affected so many people out in California. So many firefighters were on that fire trying to put it out. Firefighters got injured on that fire. But it seems like the state of California and PG&E are washing their hands of it now and saying that we've concluded the investigation and the trials into this. PG&E says we we don't accept responsibility, but we will pay $45 million to both ourselves and the state, technically. And that's that. Probably move on to the next one. That's our show for today. Thanks, everybody, who is a paid Substack subscriber. It supports everything that I do. Again, go to thehotshotwakeup.substack.com. Click on subscribe to support that. To support the firefighter donations, you're entered into our boot giveaway that we're doing. There'll be more in the future. And it supports everything that I do. A link to that should be below if you're listening on Substack or Apple Podcasts. And I thank everybody that participates in that. On that note, check out... On that note, reach out to your homies, see how they're doing. Get outside, exercise, get some fresh air, get some sun on your face. Eat those quality calories because those are the ones that count. Stretch, hydrate, get the rest you need because you need that to recover. But when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh. 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 Uh.